Chapter 30, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Stuckey. Chapter 30, Revolt of the Goths, Part 1. Revolt of the Goths. They plunder Greece. Two great invasions of Italy by Alaric and Radagasius. They are repulsed by Stilicho. The Germans overrun Gaul. Usurpation of Constantine in the West. Disgrace and death of Stilicho. If the subjects of Rome could be ignorant of their obligations to the great Theodosius, they were too soon convinced how painfully the spirit and abilities of their deceased emperor had supported the frail and moldering edifice of the republic. He died in the month of January, and before the end of the winter of the same year, the Gothic nation was in arms. The barbarian auxiliaries erected their independent standard, and boldly avowed the hostile designs which they had long cherished in their ferocious minds. Their countrymen, who had been condemned by the conditions of the last treaty to a life of tranquillity and labor, deserted their farms at the first sound of the trumpet, and eagerly resumed the weapons which they had reluctantly laid down. The barriers of the Danube were thrown open, the savage warriors of Scythia issued from their forest, and the uncommon severity of the winter allowed the poet to remark, that they rolled their ponderous wagons over the broad and icy back of the indignant river. The unhappy natives of the provinces to the south of the Danube submitted to the calamities, which, in the course of twenty years, were almost grown familiar to their imagination, and the various troops of barbarians who gloried in the Gothic name were irregularly spread from woody shore of Dalmatia to the walls of Constantinople. The interruption, or at least the diminution of the subsidy, which the Gauls had received from the prudent liberality of Theodosius, was the spacious pretense of their revolt. The affront was embittered by their contempt for the unwarlike sons of Theodosius, and their resentment was inflamed by the weakness or treachery of the minister of Arcadius, the frequent visits of Rufinus to the camp of the barbarians, whose arms and apparel he affected to imitate, were considered as sufficient evidence of his guilty correspondence, and the public enemy, from a motive either of gratitude or of policy, was attentive, amidst the general devastation, to spare the private estates of the unpopular prefect. The Goths, instead of being impelled by the blind and headstrong passions of their chiefs, were now directed by the bold and artful genius of Alaric. That renowned leader was descended from the noble race of the Baltai, which yielded only to the royal dignity of the Amali. He had solicited the command of the Roman armies, and the imperial court provoked him to demonstrate the folly of their refusal and the importance of their loss. Whatever hopes might be entertained of the conquest of Constantinople, the judicious general soon abandoned an impractical enterprise. In the midst of a divided court and a discontented people, the emperor Arcadius was terrified by the aspect of the Gothic arms, but the want of wisdom and valor was supplied by the strength of the city, and the fortifications, both of sea and land, might securely brave the impotent and random darts of the barbarians. Alaric disdained to trample any longer on the prostate and ruined countries of Thrace and Dacia, and he resolved to seek a plentiful harvest of fame and riches in a province which had hitherto escaped the ravages of war. 
The character of the civil and military officers on whom Rufinus had devolved the government of Greece confirmed the public suspicion that he had betrayed the ancient seat of freedom and learning to the Gothic invader. The proconsul Antiochus was the unworthy son of a respectable father, and Geronitius, who had commanded the provincial troops, was much better qualified to execute the oppressive orders of a tyrant than to defend with courage and ability a country most remarkably fortified by the hand of nature alaric had traversed without resistance the plains of macedonia and thessaly as far as the foot of mount ida a steep and woody range of hills almost impervious to his cavalry they stretched from east to west to the edge of the seashore and left between the precipice and the malayan gulf an interval of three hundred feet which in some places was contracted to a road capable of admitting only a single carriage in this narrow pass of thermopylae where leonidas and his three hundred spartans had gloriously devoted their lives the goths might have been stopped or destroyed by a skilful general and perhaps the view of that sacred spot might have kindled some spark of military ardor in the breast of the degenerate greeks the troops which had been posted to defend the straits of thermopylae retired as they had been directed without attempting to disturb the secure and rapid passage of alaric and the fertile fields of potius and Bodia were instantly covered by a deluge of barbarians who massacred the males of an age to bear arms and drove away the beautiful females with the spoil and cattle of the flaming villages the travellers who visited greece several years afterwards could easily discover the deep and bloody traces of the march of the goths and thebes was less indebted for her preservation to the strength of her seven gates than to the eager haste of alaric who advanced to occupy the city of athens and the important harbour of piraeus the same impatience urged him to prevent the delay and danger of a siege by the offer of a capitulation and as soon as the athenians heard the voice of the gothic herald they were easily persuaded to deliver the greatest part of their wealth as the ransom of the city of minerva and its inhabitants the treaty was ratified by solemn oaths and observed with mutual fidelity the gothic prince with a small and select train was admitted within the walls he indulged himself in the refreshment of the bath accepted a splendid banquet which was provided by the magistrate and affected to show that he was not ignorant of the manners of civilized nations but the whole territory of attica from the promontory of sunium to the town of megara was blasted by his baleful presence and if we may use the comparison of a contemporary philosopher athens itself resembled the bleeding and empty skin of a slaughtered victim the distance between megara and corinth could not much exceed thirty miles but the bad road an expressive name which it still bears among the greeks was or might easily have been made impassable for the march of an enemy the thick and gloomy woods of mount Cithaeron covered the inland country and the Scironian rocks approached the water's edge and hung over the narrow and winding path which was confined above six miles along the seashore the passage of these rocks so infamous in every age was terminated by the isthmus of corinth and a small body of firm and intrepid soldiers might have successfully defended a temporary entrenchment of five or six miles from the ionian to the aegean sea 
The confidence of the cities of the Peloponnesus in their natural rampart had tempted them to neglect the care of their antique walls, and the avarice of the Roman governors had exhausted and betrayed the unhappy province. Corinth, Argos, Sparta yielded almost without resistance to the arms of the Goths, and the most fortunate of the inhabitants were saved by death from beholding the slavery of their family and the conflagration of their cities. The vases and statues were distributed among the barbarians with more regard to the value of the materials than to the elegance of the workmanship. The female captives submitted to the laws of war, and the enjoyment of beauty was the reward of valor, and the Greeks could not reasonably complain of an abuse which was justified by the example of the heroic times. The descendants of that extraordinary people, who had considered valor and discipline as the walls of Sparta, no longer remembered the generous reply of their ancestors to the invader more formidable than Alaric. If thou art a god, thou wilt not hurt those who have never injured thee. If thou art a man, advance, and thou wilt find men equal to thyself. From Thermopylae to Sparta, the leader of the Goths pursued his victorious march without encountering any mortal antagonist. But one of the advocates of the expiring paganism has confidently asserted that the walls of Athens were guarded by the goddess Minerva, with her formidable Aegis, and by the angry phantom of Achilles, and that the conqueror was dismayed by the presence of the hostile deities of Greece, in an age of miracles, it would perhaps be unjust to dispute the claim of the historian Zosimus to the common benefit, yet it cannot be dissembled that the mind of Alaric was ill-prepared to receive, either in sleeping or waking visions, the impression of Greek superstition. The songs of Homer and the fame of Achilles had probably never reached the ear of the illiterate barbarian, and the Christian faith which he had devoutly embraced taught him to despise the imaginary deities of Rome and Athens. The invasion of the Goths, instead of vindicating the honor, contributed, at least accidentally, to extirpate the last remains of paganism. And the mysteries of Ceres, which had subsisted eighteen hundred years, did not survive the destruction of Eleusis and the calamities of Greece. The last hope of a people who could no longer depend on their arms, their gods, or their sovereign was placed in the powerful assistance of the general of the West, and Stilicho, who had not been permitted to repulse, advanced to chastise the invaders of Greece. A numerous fleet was equipped in the ports of Italy, and the troops, after a short and prosperous navigation over the Ionian Sea, were safely disembarked on the isthmus near the ruins of Corinth. The woody and mountainous country of Arcadia, the fabulous residence of Pan and the Dryads, became the scene of a long and doubtful conflict between the two generals not unworthy of each other. The skill and perseverance of the Roman at length prevailed, and the Goths, after sustaining a considerable loss from disease and desertion, gradually retreated to the lofty mountain of Folo, near the sources of the Peneus, and on the frontiers of Elis, a sacred country, which had formerly been exempt from the calamities of war. The camp of the barbarians was immediately besieged. The waters of the river were diverted into another channel, and while they labored under the intolerable pressure of thirst and hunger, a strong line of circumvallation was formed to prevent their escape. 
After these precautions, Stilicho, too confident of victory, retired to enjoy his triumph in the theatrical games and lavicious dances of the Greeks. His soldiers, deserting their standards, spread themselves over the country of their allies, which they stripped of all that had been saved from the rapacious hands of the enemy. Alaric appears to have seized the favorable moment to execute one of those hardy enterprises in which the abilities of a general are displayed with more genuine luster than in the tumult of a day of battle. To extricate himself from the prison of the Peloponnesus, it was necessary that he should pierce the entrenchments which surrounded his camp, that he should perform a difficult and dangerous march of thirty miles as far as the Gulf of Corinth, and that he should transport his troops, his captives, and his spoil over the arm of the sea, which in the narrow interval between Rhyum and the opposite shore is at least half a mile in breadth. The operations of Alaric must have been secret, prudent, and rapid, since the Roman general was confounded by the intelligence that the Goths, who had eluded his efforts, were in full possession of the important province of Epirus. This unfortunate delay allowed Alaric sufficient time to conclude the treaty, which he secretly negotiated with the ministers of Constantinople. The apprehension of a civil war compelled Stilicho to retire, at the haughty mandate of his rivals, from the dominions of Arcadius, and he respected, in the enemy of Rome, the honorable character of the ally and servant of the Emperor of the East. A Grecian philosopher, who visited Constantinople soon after the death of Theodosius, published his liberal opinions concerning the duties of kings and the state of the Roman Republic. Senecius observes and deplores the fatal abuse which the imprudent bounty of the late emperors had introduced into the military service. The citizens and subjects had purchased an exemption from the indispensable duty of defending their country, which was supported by the arms of barbarian mercenaries. The fugitives of Scythia were permitted to disgrace the illustrious dignities of the empire. Their ferocious youth, who disdained the salutary restraint of laws, were more anxious to acquire the riches than to imitate the arts of a people the object of their contempt and hatred. And the power of the Goths was the stone of Tantalus, and perpetually suspended over the peace and safety of the devoted state. The measures which Senesis recommends are the dictates of a bold and generous patriot. He exhorts the emperor to revive the courage of his subjects by the example of manly virtue, to banish luxury from the court and from the camp, to substitute in the place of the barbarian mercenaries an army of men interested in the defense of their laws and of their property, to force in such a moment of public danger the mechanic from his shop and the philosopher from his school, to rouse the indolent citizen from his dream of pleasure and to arm for the protection of agriculture the hands of the laborious husbandmen. At the head of such troops who might deserve the name and who would display the spirit of Romans, he animates the son of Theodosius to encounter a race of barbarians who were destitute of any real courage and never to lay down his arms till he had chased them far away into the solitudes of Scythia, or had reduced them to the state of ignominious servitude, which the Lacedaemonians formerly imposed on the captive helots. The court of Arcadius indulged the zeal, applauded the eloquence, and neglected the advice of Senecius. Perhaps, the philosopher who addresses the emperor of the East in the language of reason and virtue, 
which he might have used to a Spartan king, had not condescended to form a practicable scheme consistent with the temper and circumstances of a degenerate age. Perhaps the pride of the ministers, whose business was seldom interrupted by reflection, might reject as wild and visionary every proposal which exceeded the measure of their capacity, and deviated from the forms and precedents of office. While the oration of Senesis and the downfall of barbarians were the topics of popular conversation, an edict was published at Constantinople, which declared the promotion of Alaric to the rank of master-general of the eastern Illyricum. The Roman provincials and the allies, who had respected the faith of treaties, were justly indignant that the ruin of Greece and Epirus should be so liberally rewarded. The Gothic conqueror was received as a lawful magistrate in the cities which he had so lately besieged. The fathers, whose sons he had massacred, the husbands whose wives he had violated were subject to his authority, and the success of his rebellion encouraged the ambition of every leader of the foreign mercenaries. The use to which Alaric applied his new command distinguishes the firm and judicious character of his policy. He issued his orders to the four magazines and manufacturers of offensive and defensive arms, Margus, Retiaria, Nasus, and Thessalonica, to provide his troops with an extraordinary supply of shields, helmets, swords, and spears. The unhappy provincials were compelled to forge the instruments of their own destruction, and the barbarians removed the only defect which had sometimes disappointed the efforts of their courage. The birth of Alaric, the glory of his past exploits, and the confidence in his future designs insensibly united the body of the nation under his victorious standard and, with the unanimous consent of the barbarian chieftains, the master-general of Illyricum was elevated, according to the ancient custom, on a shield, and solemnly proclaimed king of the Visigoths. Armed with this double power, seated on the verge of the two empires, he alternately sold his deceitful promises to the court of Arcadius and Honorius, till he declared and executed his resolution of invading the dominions of the west. The provinces of Europe, which belonged to the eastern emperor, were already exhausted. Those of Asia were inaccessible, and the strength of Constantinople had resisted his attack. But he was tempted by the fame, the beauty, the wealth of Italy, which he had twice visited, and he secretly aspired to plant the Gothic standard on the walls of Rome, and to enrich his army with the accumulated spoils of three hundred triumphs. The scarcity of facts and the uncertainty of dates oppose our attempts to describe the circumstances of the first invasion of Italy by the arms of Alaric. His march, perhaps from Thessalonica through the warlike and hostile country of Pannonia, as far as the foot of the Julian Alps, his passage of those mountains, which were strongly guarded by troops and entrenchments, the siege of Aquilia, and the conquest of the provinces of Istria and Venetia, appear to have employed a considerable time. Unless his operations were extremely cautious and slow, the length of the interval would suggest a probable suspicion that the Gothic king retreated toward the banks of the Danube and reinforced his army with fresh swarms of barbarians before he again attempted to penetrate into the heart of Italy. Since the public and important events escaped the diligence of the historian, 
he may amuse himself with contemplating, for a moment, the influence of the arms of Alaric on the fortunes of two obscure individuals, a presbyter of Aquileia and a husbandman of Verona, the learned Rufinus, who was summoned by his enemies to appear before a Roman synod, wisely preferred the dangers of a besieged city. And the barbarians who furiously shook the walls of Aquileia might save him from the cruel sentence of another heretic, who, at the request of the same bishops, was severely whipped and condemned to perpetual exile on a desert island. The old man, who had passed his simple and innocent life in the neighborhood of Verona, was a stranger to the quarrels of both kings and of bishops. His pleasures, his desires, his knowledge were confined within the little circle of his paternal farm, and a staff supported by his aged steps on the same ground where he had sported in his infancy. Yet even this humble and rustic felicity, which the Claudian describes with so much truth and feeling, was still exposed to the undistinguishing rage of war. His trees, his old contemporary trees, must blaze in the conflagration of the whole country, a detachment of Gothic cavalry might sweep away his cottage and his family, and the power of Alaric could destroy this happiness, which he was not able to either taste or to bestow. Fame, says the poet, encircling with terror her gloomy wings, proclaimed the march of the barbarian army and filled Italy with consternation. The apprehensions of each individual were increased in just proportion to the measure of his fortune, and the most timid who had already embarked their valuable effects meditated their escape to the island of Sicily or the African coast. The public distress was aggravated by the fears and reproaches of superstition. Every hour produced some horrid tale of strange and portentous accidents. The pagans deplored the neglect of omens and the interruption of sacrifices, but the Christians still derived some comfort from the powerful intercession of the saints and the martyrs. End Chapter 30 Part 1 Recording by Jeff Stuckey of Atlanta, Georgia Further information concerning Jeff Stuckey can be found by visiting jeffstuckey.com